Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. Welcome to the Fallout Lorecast. The podcast that explores the boundaries of our knowledge about the world of Fallout. Vault Dwellers. Wastelanders, welcome back to the Fallout Lorecast. I have been getting some messages from a number of people who have requested this specific episode because a video went up recently by TKS Mantis, and some of you were probably going, oh yes, absolutely, I totally understand where you're going here. Uh, TKS Mantis, thank you so much for interviewing Tim Kane. What a wonderful conversation that you had, and... Tim, during this conversation, has revealed some very interesting things about the origins of Fallout, about some questions in the lore, and the big, big news about who actually dropped the bombs, or at least initiated the bombs in order, and for whatever reason they did it, which we will get to by the end of this episode. But there are a number of things that Tim reveals in this interview. So... Here's what I'm going to do. First of all, if you want to hear the entire interview, which I highly recommend, I have a link to TKS Mantis's actual video about this. I will be pulling some audio clips so that you can hear Tim firsthand stating what he states. And uh, by the way, if you don't know, Tim Kane, original designer, creator, uh, programmer behind the original Fallout and then worked for about four months on Fallout 2 continued on to do other projects, uh, many of other games that we've actually played probably. Um, But the focus here is Tim and what he answered to these questions. And so first of all, don't just listen to my audio clips here. After listening to this episode, go give TKS Mantis some clicks on his YouTube channel. Subscribe. He does a lot of great content. And this interview is absolutely worth listening to. It's an hour and a half long, lots of really cool conversations around lots of different topics. So this is only very specific highlights that I am pulling out for this episode. So just want to make that clear and uh, set you up for it. We're going to go through the things that I found most interesting from a lore perspective and game design perspective. And eventually we're going to get to who actually dropped the bombs and what my thoughts are on that. So here we go. All right, so let's get into this. Tim Kaine, very interesting guy. He gets into his mindset in this interview behind designing the world of Fallout, writing the lore, working on the game, working with a team of other people. This is one of the things that he talks about a lot are the other people that were involved and how they were kind of all in the same direction, the same mindset. There was a lot of harmony in their focus and the kinds of things they were putting in the game, the darkness, and yet the humor, the kind of inside jokes that they work into the game. And they set the the tone for the Fallout universe as far as we know it with the very first game, with a community of developers that were very much on the same page. The other thing that he reinforces a lot is this idea that so much of what actually ended up in Fallout 1 was just kind of not 
planned. It was cool stuff that they thought of on the fly. And a lot of it was just answering questions or problems that they came across in creative and interesting ways. For example, and I'm, I'm not going to play the clip for this part, he talks about the creation of the Deathclaw and how the design of the Deathclaw was actually an unused asset from a D&D game that the studio was working on and wasn't planning to use. So they scooped it up and put it in Fallout. That's why the Deathclaw looks the way it does. And then they backwards engineered the lore and the description in order to explain why this is what it is. This is par for the course with them. They were a scrappy small group working on a minor project at a bigger developer and they were just rolling with it. And that's the feeling behind this. And so I just want to start off this episode reinforcing that concept. So many people come to Fallout with this very hardline mindset of, well, everything must have been planned out. Everything must be a certain way because of this and because of that. There's justifications for everything. Another example that he brought up with, with a question about uh, spiders. Why are there no spiders in Fallout? And one of the concepts that the community tosses around is that spiders under radiation stop building webs effectively and they can't catch food and so they would have died out, which makes a lot of sense. Tim's answer to that was, well, we just didn't have spi spiders. We just didn't think about them. <laughs> they just didn't come up. We built scorpions, but eh, spiders wasn't on the list. And nobody's done spiders since. So there's not necessarily, as according to him, a very specific reason for that other than just, eh, oops, no spiders. So I, I think that mindset needs to be understood a little bit better. It's kind of fun to fantasize that so many of these details across the Fallout games are sculpted and created and designed with one big master plan. But a lot of the times that's just not the case. It's just people trying to put out something that's fun and just going with what they've got at the moment. So keep that in mind. When you go back, if you go back and listen to older episodes of my podcast, keep that in mind when you hear some of the things that are discussed. But here's, here's an interesting point where they start talking about New Vegas. Check this out. Me, it's always like, eh, we just made it up. But yeah, Chris always has these, Chris had plans for everything. But what I love is, and Josh and Chris and everybody worked on Fallout New Vegas. Wow, is that not the most Fallouty of the 3D versions? It's just yes. a very Fallouty game. I it, loved it. I remember playing it, just going. It and you know it. what it is, and I'll say it because you might not. And what I think it is is location. I think it's the continuation of the West Coast story of that universe. Yeah, but seems to make the vibe. I grew up right outside D.C., and so when Fallout 3 was set in D.C., I was oh, no, super excited, no, and I loved it, and I was like, this is really cool. But when um, I'm talking to a super mutant up at Black, or I guess he wouldn't do it at Black Mountain, but um, when you hear them talking, and they're like, oh, the master, and they start talking about right. that, I, I go, I'm like, oh, the master? Like, right. oh my god. And it makes sense, because yeah, you're not yeah, that far away yeah. from L.A. But when I see super mutants in D.C., I go, well, what the hell are they doing here? Or mm. when I see Brotherhood of Steel mm. in D.C., I'm like, what mm. the hell? Now, again, as I've said many times before, Bethesda owns Fallout, and they are free to do whatever they want with it. I have no problems with it. And they make great games. Fallout 3, loved it. Fallout 4, loved it. 
So a few things here. He's talking about the location and TKS Mantis is talking about how uh, that location of New Vegas and references to the first two games are what it made what made it feel more fallouty to him, among probably other things, which they kind of jump topics. Sometimes it seems like it might go more into it, but it didn't. And Tim is agreeing with him here. Tim is also heading in this direction of talking about the DC fallout of Fallout 3 and how he was excited to go to different locations. This is going to come up again later. His mindset here is different than my mindset and my perspective. I put out an episode a few weeks ago about how Fallout will always be set in the United States because that's the point of the game. But in his mind, he was thinking about taking it other places. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Also, uh, TKS Mantis mentions here that Although the Bethesda games are different and took the lore in a different direction, that's okay. Like, according to him, he's like, and that's fine. I still enjoyed the games. It's just, it's just different. And I think that that's a healthy mindset. We can enjoy each of the games for different reasons. We can praise New Vegas for being closer to the original fallouts, but we can also enjoy the newer ones for being what they are in different ways. And I think that's, that totally makes sense. Clearly, Tim also still enjoys the other games for what they are. They just aren't necessarily the game that he would have designed. The nice thing I like to say is this is where I would have taken Fallout. Yeah. And then Interplay later took Fallout in different in a different direction. Sure? Yeah. And Bethesda took Fallout in a different yeah. direction. It's not necessarily bad. It's just it's not where well, I would have gone. See, and right there you can see that Tim has that kind of mentality. This is where the other studios went. And not just this is where Bethesda went. This is where Interplay went. This is when they were trying to do Fallout Brotherhood of Steel and some of those tactics and and some of the other games that just weren't so great. And he's going, well, you know, they took it in a different direction. Doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. It's just different. It's just different than what I had in mind. And that's okay because they own the rights to it. And And sometimes those games turn out pretty good. You know, sometimes not so much, but some of them, yeah, some of them are still good games, even though they weren't necessarily what he was thinking initially. So keep this in mind as we continue forward. So they move on with the conversation and then they get into this whole section about the Vault Boy and the origins of the Vault Boy. And this, again, is one of those happy solutions to a problem. Check this out. Here's this quick history of Vault Boy. So we originally had icons on all the Skildex cards. Okay. And um, Arlene Summers had made all the, like 200 icons. And I went to Leonard and I'm like, I don't know if it's my colorblindness. My colorblindness was really kicking in. My family has congenital adult onset set colorblindness. Oh, so no. I wasn't colorblind when I was 16 and I started in the industry. But by the time I was in my late 20s making Fallout. It's even worse because you know what you're missing. Oh, I remember colors I can't yeah. see. Oh, that's so sad. I went to Leonard and like, I don't know if it's my colorblindness, but some of these icons look the same. And I can never tell. Even when I look at the icon, it doesn't bring up any connotation with the skill. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm worried about that. He goes, I have an idea. He goes, you know the Monopoly cards. Mr. Moneybags or Money... Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. Yeah. Um, I want to make a character like this. And he drew something. And he, I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. But we need hundreds. And he goes, well, let me go talk to George Allman. George Allman was another artist, but he had cartooning cartooning skills, inking okay. skills. And George looked at it and goes, I get what you're trying to do, but let me, um, let me show you how to do the ink weights. So George modified the ink weights to the fine... So Leonard drew the initial one which pretty much was it from my untrained eye, George changed the ink weights to the final, what you see now. Okay. And then a third artist, T. Ray Isaac, Tramel Ray Isaac. Yeah. He was then tasked. We're like, Tramel, we need a couple hundred of these. And he goes, what do they look like? And they're like, see all these 
cards. All the lore had already been written on them. Read the card and then write, draw something appropriate. T-Ray did those. So he did the kicking her in the stomach? Now, for Fallout 2, I think Brian Menzies. I don't know if it was T-Ray and Brian Menzies or just Brian Menzies, but I know Brian Menzies got pulled in to do a lot of those, too. So I don't know. But Leonard drew the first Vault Boy, though. Yes. Yeah. And he showed it to me, and I loved it. And what was weird was Steve Jackson Games didn't like it. They did not like it. And we were were truly shocked. And I remember thinking, but we've done a couple hundred of them. And they're perfect. And not only does everybody like them, everybody really, really, really likes them. Marketing was like, oh, we've got our our mascot. Yeah. So there you have it. That's the origin of the Vault Boy design. And you can clearly see that this was a solution to a problem that created something even better. (laughs) If that problem hadn't been there, then we would not have Vault Boy associated with fallout that whole marketing push for vault tech the the character design the iconic look and like he said with the marketing department they were like here's our here's our character here's our mascot this is perfect and most of them were like this is amazing this is great and yet there were still some parties that weren't super happy with it but thankfully it worked out And now we have Vault Boy. So pretty cool. Now here's Tim talking about the actual concept here that sometimes the things that are best in Fallout came from problems. Check this out. It's interesting. Leonard has a theory that some of the best things that happened on Fallout were the results of something that that at the time we thought was catastrophic. Yeah. Like we lost the original designer. Um, Scott Campbell. Okay. Because he he left and he had an opportunity and he took it and I'm like, go for it, dude. But then we got Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor, you might recognize the name, became the lead designer on Fallout. So without this situation, he wouldn't have shown up. And Tim goes on to talk about some other similar situations where they lost somebody, but they brought somebody else in and the person they brought in was also great for that role and lended a lot to the game. And it was those personalities, those people all working together to create something that resonates with all of us. And Tim has a theory about why that is. Listen to this. My theory of why Fallout appeals to people is, and it's so basic, we were sometimes just trying to make each other laugh. Okay. We were just, we we were a tight little team and we were off in our corner. And I know sometimes people put in things saying, because they told me later, like, this will make Tim laugh. But sometimes I was like, oh, people are going to love this. So there you go. That's that's the solution. So much of the game just is the way it is because of that tight-knit community, everybody on the same page, trying to make each other laugh, basically. So when you're debating the lore and you're debating the way that these games work, how everything fits together, why certain things are in the games... Remember that this is the tone. This is the reason so much of the way Fallout is, is the way it is. It's a very relaxed, organic, loose reason, and not something with like an iron hold or an iron fist over the development. It's more of a, hey, that was fun. Let's include it. Hey, that's cool. Let's do that. So keep that in mind. All right, we have to go thank our patrons We'll be right back, but don't go anywhere because we're getting into some of the more 
very specific lore details that were revealed. And you're going to want to hear these. Hello there, old chap. Good to see another of General Atomic's finest still eager to serve. All right, so here we are. This is the place where we get to thank our patrons, including our newest patron, Damien S. Welcome to the Patreon. And shout-outs to the Liberty Prime, the highest-tier patron. There is only one. There can only be one. Darth Mosin, thank you for your support. Thank you for being here and supporting the show. And also to our sentry bot, Sky R. If you sign up as a sentry bot, you get shout-outs every week. If you're interested in helping to support the show, getting ad-free episodes, uh, t-shirts, stickers, joining us for patron chats, things like that. Patreon.com slash Lorecast is the place to do it. Also, we have a new review on Apple Podcasts. And just a reminder, if you leave a five-star review, we will read it out on a future episode of the show. This one comes from Stockham036 in The Greatest of Britons, who writes, Incredible podcast. It is rare that I find a podcast that not only has the knowledge of what I'm looking for, but also the showmanship as well. I 100% recommend this podcast to anyone who has a love of playing the Fallout games. Not only does Robots Radio uh, go into depth with the main storylines and obvious points to capture, but also every minor detail that you're going to come by. I have been an avid Fallout player for years now, and even here I am finding out things and expanding my understanding through this podcast. To top it off, the quality of these recordings from the clarity of his speech and the way even through a podcast he can connect with the audience is fantastic. Keep up the amazing work. Well, thank you so much, Stockham. And uh, if anyone else would like to help out with this show, sharing it with your friends, rating it on Spotify, you know, any of that stuff absolutely helps. So thank you for your support, for keeping the show going. And let's move on with the rest of Tim Kaine's reveals. Here we go. If you have any questions about Nuka World, I'd be delighted to answer them. All right, welcome back. So we're moving on with the interview with Tim Kaine. Again, thank you so much, TKS Mantis. Go check out his channel. Go check out this video. Drop him a like and a subscribe and, you know, all the youtube stuff. But they continue on the conversation and, again, kind of sum up the idea of the the way that this lore was created, the way that the game was created. And then they move into a very interesting detail about the Gek. Check this out. Fallout was far less planned and more organic the okay. way it was created. I understand that, yeah. 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 And uh, for people wondering about lore, it seems when it comes to Tim that uh, things were made because they were fun. Yeah. And then you just fill in the blanks afterwards. Yep. Sometimes we, we put something in and then we retroactively explained it. Yeah. Sometimes we realize an explanation was needed to fill in some area and we do the explanation and then that we were like, oh, well... Like, people people hate this story, but the Gek was put in Fallout 1's manual because we had a blank page, and Leonard didn't want a blank page. So he invented the Garden of Eden creation kit and threw it in as an advertisement, as, as a, the, the final product Vault Tech was working on before. Okay. And then when we suddenly had to come up with a Fallout 2 alternative... Here's um, this MacGuffin right here. <laughs> he's like, well, we got the Gek. Why don't we? Why don't you be leaving? You know, you're playing one of your kids or grandkids, and you're off looking for this mythical Gek. Yeah, to and I'm like, Arroyo. but you just made that up in an afternoon and drew a picture. And he goes, yeah, but we're 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 fill it out. The Garden of Eden creation kit, one of the key features of Fallout. Like, if you were to list the top dozen things 
I don't know. Expand <laughs> if you expand my list of top five things that have to be in every Fallout game. Uh, the Garden of Eden Creation Kit, if I could say my words correctly, is probably up there on the list, right? That's one of those things that's like very specifically a Fallout thing. And like they said in the interview, kind of becomes a MacGuffin, shows up in multiple games. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it shows up in every game. I'm sure somebody is yelling at their uh, radio or, you know, headphones or whatever they're listening to me on right now. But key part of the games, key part of the games that was... Filling in an empty page in a manual and then becomes a major plot point in a future Fallout game. And this feels like it's something that has continued forward. For example, we find out that synths are a thing in Fallout 3 and then the concept of the synths, the Institute, all of that stuff gets flushed out even more in Fallout 4 and becomes a major plot point for the next game. Now, is that because Bethesda did the same thing? They just put something that was cool in the games and then later on went, you know, we've already got some information about this. Let's expand it. Or did they already have a sense of where Fallout 4 might go and they planted a seed? Both things work. And what's crazy about that is you can't tell in retrospect, unless you're one of the game devs, which one it was because they both look the same. And Tim's in this situation saying, yeah, most of the time we just kind of threw something in. And then later on, it became kind of a bigger thing. <laughs> so pretty cool, pretty cool insight into how a lot of this stuff is developed. Again, not the big overseeing focus on how everything's going to go. It's more of they were just doing stuff as they went. So now we're getting into the really juicy stuff. What happens if Tim Kaine doesn't leave Fallout 2 four months in, ends up maintaining basically the direction and his role in the design of future Fallout games. Where where does he go with it is basically the question that TKS Mantis asks, and it's a great question. This is what he says. Um, so it would have gone 3D. I would have gone to different parts of the world. One thing I've gone to a different country. One thing I told people is we used to talk about because Fallout America was very much the jingoism of American. Yeah, Americana. Yeah, yeah. we wanted to explore China and Russia, but even then we're like we don't know enough about this. Yeah, so we would have had to find someone. We we would have had to do hires and gone. We need somebody who really knows Russian day to day life and could tell us what the fifties style. Russia, what what did 50s Russia think the future would be? And what did 50s China think the future would be? I wanted to explore Those games would have that. been neat. I wanted to do that. And just to make people salivate, and I've told people this because I'm never, ever going to talk about it, I already designed a Fallout, and nobody's seen the design. Because, I didn't even tell Leonard the design because if it ever gets made, I will know it's a coincidence. But I'd already thought of what I, I wanted see. to make as my next Fallout. Okay but it's never been made. Yeah. I don't even see things going that way. Mm -hmm. So I just sits in my head. And well, you're making papers. a lot of people salivate by talking about other <laughs> countries because that's one of the biggest things people ask me. And it's actually one of the things I'm usually against. So a few things to unpack here. This is a really interesting point because it's something, again, that I spoke about. And TKS Mantis and I seem to be on the same page here that the way that current Fallout is done, the focus is America. It's foundational to the tone and the concepts of the games. But if Tim Kaine had 
his version of the way things would go, he would explore other places, specifically China and Russia. Those are the two he lists here. They move on in the conversation to list some other places. They talk about the the London mod that's coming out. Um, Tim Kaine lists a number of other locations, places like Prague or Paris or uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, I believe is one of the ones that's mentioned. And going to these different locations, what that would be like. And basically he says, there are so many great cities on our planet. What would they look like? bombed (laughs) what would they look like nuked and how would those people survive the other thing that i think is super cool about the way he describes the limitations around going to these locations is that from a u.s developer who didn't grow up in china or russia or wherever he doesn't have any insight and a lot of the team doesn't have any insight into what those locations were like in the 1950s and what their view of the future would be This is important insight. This is important because it means that the concept of retrofuturism, the concept that the fallout wasteland, the world after the bombs drop, is firmly set in the way that people perceived the future would be and then turned on its head. And in America, the results of what that is are what we get in the fallout games. We're still listening to old music, but we have this certain types of technology, space aliens, like B-movie type stuff, right? Those kinds of things happen in the United States. This means that we can have some insight into what China would be like or what Russia would be like based on their culture of the 1950s and the way they expected the future to become. That right there defines in some sense, what the lore of current, like 100, 200 years after the bombs fall, China is like, because it's based on what people would expect it to be, and then kind of turned on its head the same way it is for the United States. Now, there's a caveat here. Tim Kaine is no longer working on Fallout games. He doesn't work with Bethesda. Bethesda owns the, the series. So if they decided to go to one of these locations, it may not play out the way Tim Kaine would want it to play out. So take that with a grain of salt. This works for headcanon, but someday it might be different. Now, some of you are probably wondering, okay, Tom, if you think that it's never going to be out of the United States, then what if they did something like that? What if a spinoff studio did Fallout China? Would you be upset with that? Absolutely not. I will make another episode and I'll go, these are things I got wrong in previous episodes because, hey, I thought it would work out this way and it didn't. I still get a new Fallout game. I still get to see some really cool stuff, get some new lore. Absolutely. I would 100% jump on top of that and, you know, have to say, well, I messed up. I got something wrong. But that's great. I'm totally fine with that. So (laughs) Bethesda, if you want to outsource to Obsidian to do a Fallout China, go for it. Totally would be into that. Oh, and uh, speaking of China. We don't come across as good as the reason we got nuked is bio weapons were illegal. And somehow China found out we were doing FEV. And they're like, you have to stop it. And we went, okay. And all we did is move it. All we did is move Earth it over. shattering, to the what gl- you just said. <laughs> really? Is that stuff people don't know? Well, people actually debate over who shot first. Like a... 
Oh, they do? Solo thing. Oh, well, then I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? It was no, probably uh, some rogue well, nation. That movie they... So there you have it. That's the big news. China shot first. And it's heavily implied in the games. Uh, it, there are characters that say China's the one who dropped the bombs first. We retaliated. That was always the de facto status of the situation as far as anybody knew. And if you go back and listen to my really early episodes, because this is a topic that I kind of founded the podcast on, I discuss the details around that, how it seems like it was China. Was it really China? And there's a few different layers we can peel back there. First of all, did it just look like China? Was it somebody else who actually was pretending to be the Chinese sending a nuke first? That's one of the speculations. Was it actually China, but there was motivation and conflicting things going on. So in the first case, you have bombs dropping, and then the question is, like, did China actually send the bombs over, or did vault Tech make it look like they were coming from China? Did the Enclave make it look like they were coming from China? Or did aliens make it look like they were coming from China? Turns out, according to Tim, nope, they actually came from China. Nobody else was behind that. The second question, then, is what was the motivation? And according to Tim, the motivation was that the United States, who were not necessarily good guys either, were doing biological warfare. They developed the FEV. They were working on super mutants. China finds out. Makes sense. They've got stealth agents in the country. And they retaliate because the United States says, well, we're not going to do it anymore. But they lie about it. And of course, they still do it. So how are you supposed to interpret all of this? Here's what I think. What we're actually getting here from Tim is the way he understood the lore as of leaving the project four months into Fallout 2. Had he continued on with Fallout games to this day, this would 100% be exactly what happened. The problem is that after Tim leaves the studio, leaves the project, there are multiple games that have been created as canon that have come out since then. Fallout 3, New Vegas, Fallout 4, 76, if it actually contains canon elements sometime in the future, that will be determined. As of right now, it seems like that is the case. That's what we are to believe. And so, because this title changed hands two times, to Interplay and then to Bethesda, and we've had multiple lead designers on this series writers, other people, the line that I've always heard from developers is it's only canon if it's in the game. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying Tim Kaine is wrong. I'm not saying his perspective, his opinion, his thoughts about this are invalid. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is the closest answer to what we know about that situation because it hasn't been answered. But in the 20 years, 20 plus years since he left the studio, has Bethesda created a document somewhere detailing more specifically the events that happened that led to the Great War? Because if they have, and if that works its way into a future Fallout game, this story may be more complex. Maybe it was China. Maybe there are other influences there. Maybe it was because of the development of bioweapons. 
maybe there's more details there. Again, we don't actually know until it happens in a game. And so for right now, you can walk around and say, well, I'm pretty sure that this is how it went. Because according to the guy who created Fallout, this is how it went. But remember, it's not like a novel series. This isn't like George R.R. R. Martin saying, oh yeah, this is what actually happened in book two, even though I didn't go over the details specifically. This is a series that's created by multiple people over decades. And this is exciting because maybe that's the answer. But maybe it isn't. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to have you join us on the Discord, share your thoughts about this. But as far as I'm concerned, that's the best way to perceive this. So go ahead and use the information, walk around with it, share it with your friends, but source it. Say, according to Tim Kaine, this is what happened. We still haven't seen it in a game to be 100% sure. Have a wonderful week. Go check out TKS Mantis's YouTube channel. Check out the entire interview. The whole thing's worth watching. Thanks again to both of them for putting out this content and giving us something to really pour over and have a wonderful week. I hope you don't eat too much candy this week from Halloween. Uh, survive that. Survive the candy from Halloween. I'll see you next time. To plug into everything else we're doing, check out robotsradio.net. Reach out to me on Twitter at robots underscore radio. Check out the Robots Radio Rocket Club where you can join me and a bunch of our other creators creating your podcast, starting a new podcast, or helping your current podcast grow. There's more information about that on robotsradio.net as well. And you can always talk with us and the entire community, over 2,000 people on the Robots Radio Discord. Come join us. We'd love to chat with you. See you guys next time.